Wow, this is officially 10 episodes of Overthinking the Modern World. I've been having a real blast with it so far, but with all things, it ebbs and flows. There are some very exciting episodes lined up, but I will be spacing out my releases just a tad now that work and life is picking back up. The month of March is Women's History Month, and who better to have on for the first episode of March than an expert on feminism and gender studies, and what better topic to tackle than modern feminism. Martha Rampton and I covered a lot of great ground in this episode. We talked about the different waves of feminism, the core issues affecting women today, such as abortion rights, the baby penalty, the hypersexualization of women, and more. We also talked about feminism in a global scope, and also concepts such as patriarchy and privilege. What surprised me is how much the topic of men came up, and it should be known, men have problems in the modern day as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I am very grateful towards all of you for listening to the podcast. If you have any feedback, feel free to hit me on any of the social media platforms, and if you'd like to see highlights from the pod, you can find me at OTMW Podcast on Instagram and Overthink the Modern World on TikTok. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. Today we are joined by my first female guest ever, Professor Martha Rampton, to talk about modern feminism. Martha has published multiple books and papers on the topic of feminism, as well as social history relating to the activities and roles of women. She's also occupied leadership roles, such as being on multiple boards and committees, having been the founder, chair of the board, and director for the Center for Women and Gender Equity at Pacific University for the last 20 years. Martha, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's nice to be here. It's fantastic having you. And uh, first of all, congratulations for over 20 years of the Center for Women and Gender Equity. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we used to call ourselves the Center for Women and Gender Equity. And then, oh, I don't know, probably 15 years ago, the students at Pacific University really wanted the word women taken out because they thought it was sort of a, a contradiction in terms to say women and gender equity. So for several years, we just call it the Center for Gender Equity. And that really helped men to identify it more. So when we changed the name, we started getting men coming in on the staff and coming to our programming. So wow. I think indicative of what we're going to be talking about in regard to feminism. Oh, yes, that's actually very relevant. So now, sorry, it's now called the Center of Gender Equity. The Center for Gender Equity. Okay. Uh, out of curiosity, what does the Center of Gender Equity do at Pacific University specifically? Oh, so many things. So uh, we have four pillars of things we do. We we educate, we advocate, you know, we raise money for various and sundry funds. And the main thing we do is program. So uh, program, and when we think of gender, we think of gender writ large. So we don't think of men and women or LGBTQ or non-binary. We're talking about the way the world is gendered. And so nations are gendered and ideas are gendered. So it's, it's very, very broad. Um, and, you know, we definitely a lot recently focus on masculinities. So that's a topic I know we're going to get to later. Yeah, extremely excited about that. So and, if yeah. one thing that's important for us, I would say discussion and education. Right. Yeah. And in what forms do they take? Is it discussion groups between you yeah. and students? 
Well, not not so much. It can be that, but it's bringing speakers to campus or it's having, um, you know, uh, kind of like support groups, for instance, for LGBTQ or it's smaller discussions among students or it's outdoor movies. And so we do a wide range. We do uh, work in the community. And so mainly it's programming around that. We have events. We did this fabulous one called You Walk in Her Shoes, and it was an outdoor event where men wore high heels and, you know, (laughs) it was fun and it was funny, but of course there was a serious intent. So, so much of our programming is like, seems lighthearted and fun and it brings students in, but there's always a serious um, intent that comes out at the end. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So I actually first heard about your work after reading uh, one of your probably more popular works is the four waves of feminism. And before we dive into modern feminism, I thought it would be a good idea to go back in history a bit and talk about the first couple of waves. How did the first wave really begin? So I'm going to be really brief because I know we have a lot to talk about. Um, So, but just, you know, like you said, to orient us, really the first wave of feminism begins uh, in, you know, sort of the 1920s or so. But even before that, um, there were movements, they weren't called feminist movements, um, and I can talk about those if you like. Some of them are even medieval. So I'm a medieval historian, and you look back in that period and you do see uh, women, few men, talking about the rights of women, but it's by no mean, means feminism. And then um, around, what is it, 1800, you had women advocating for the education of other women. But the real feminist movement really begins in 1920, um, and that's about suffrage. And so the focus of that was women getting the vote. But in the process of working for the vote, a lot of other issues came up about the inequality around women. And then in the suffragette movement, uh, women were so brutalized, you know, for being sort of unladylike. And, you know, they were thrown in jail and they were speaking in public. And that was thought to be, you know, beneath the dignity of a decent woman, et cetera. So uh, women did get the vote. But so many of these other issues then bubbled to the top. But after the women got the vote, things kind of settled down for a while. Um, And so the second wave of feminism really begins like in the 1960s. That's not to say there was nothing happening between 1920 and 1960, but when we're really talking about waves. So 1960 to about, you know, mid-1990 was what people really think of the, for the feminist movement or the women, li, women's liberation movement. Mm. The focus of that was about female equality general in the workplace, but I would say most important at all was around the cult of domesticity mm. and around the body, women's body and women's uh, sort of rights, if you consider it a right, to control her destiny, and so much of that was to control her body. Not just in terms of having children, but in other terms as well, the way she dressed, etc. So, but the the foci in that movement were vast, right. and and that's really that's the period where so much of this germinated, and then sort of mid 90s, um, the third wave began, and that's an interesting wave, and I think we're going to talk about that later because I know you have an interest in it, mm. and that was a period where so many men, er, women, and men, you know, we. I always want to remember there's always been men in these movements. Sort of have the notion that our needs have been met, things are getting better, job, you know, job equity has improved. And so 
those people, that generation, felt like, yeah, women's rights are important, but we pretty much achieved that, and we don't want to talk in feminist terms anymore. So it's as though feminism is old-fashioned, we've achieved our goals, Mm. and we're done with that. So when I wrote the article you're referring to, I said that there's a fourth wave sort of on the horizon. Right. I call it the fourth wave of feminism. It's not on the horizon anymore, okay? It's full-blown. It's out there. Ah, okay. Which is, I think, really gratifying. To me, that's so interesting. And I would say that's students, or, you know, not just students, but uh, people sort of in their young, in their 20s or whatever. Those are the people I think are articulating this. And that wave is in some ways, a return to the second wave of feminism and women's lib, but with a real different flavor. Hmm. So now what you get, I think, for people interested in gender issues and in feminism is a willingness to look at some of the issues that the third waivers thought were solved. So that's a very, very broad. So it goes back. Yeah, it it circles back in a way, but it, it... the fourth wave is a combination of the second and third. So it's not just a throwback. The third wave is very important, but um, they kind of let things go dormant a little bit. And so there's a lot of issues we're struggling with now that uh, either weren't addressed or people thought that's kind of been solved. I mean, there's still rape, you know, there's still inequity in pay, but those things are getting better. That was the thought. And now I realize not necessarily getting better. Oh, we've stagnated in our growth. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I feel so, like yeah. I have found that the the third wave of feminism has been lost on many people because it's seemingly more ambiguous. I mean, you mentioned the first and second waves. There were pretty concrete goals. I mean, the first wave, this women's suffrage and getting the ability to vote. I mean, um, getting that into legislation, I think, is a very concrete goal that was very unified. But I would say in the third wave... What are women really fighting for, do you think? Well, one of the characteristics of the third wave is because they rejected the notion of a feminist movement and really, by and large, rejected the word. In fact, not by and large. That was pretty consistent, that they didn't like the word feminism. And the reason why is because it didn't seem appropriate or necessary to segregate you know, the, the genders in that way. So it was really a rejection of what was often called male bashing. It was like inviting everybody in. Another, uh, but but they eschewed movements, mm-hmm. joining, that sort of thing. And so there weren't real common goals. I completely agree with you on that. But some of the things that came out of that is, uh, you know, women embracing their bodies again. Well, not again, sort of for the first time. Right. And um, more intersectionality, even though that word wasn't really used at that point. But men were invited in, you know, uh, people of color invited in. So the second wave really was a movement of, of white, Western, cisgender women. Mm. And in the third wave, those barriers were broken down a little bit. And in the fourth wave, it's extremely important. It, I mean, it defines the fourth wave in some ways, that it's inclusive. Yes, I, I like that word that you brought up about intersectionality. And, you know, I, I do believe it's in- incredibly important. I think when you um, create intersections between like race and gender, there are very unique problems. But this also causes a lot of complexity, right? Because I was watching this feminism debate of pro-feminists and those who oppose feminists on, um, and they were all females. And 
it always seemed like something else was brought up, not just gender. It was about like race as well. It was like, oh, but you're a white female and I'm a black female. And don't you think that this kind of clouds things? Because you're no longer talking about things in isolation. It's no longer like men and women. Well, I think it does make things more complicated, but I wouldn't really use the word cloud, at least not for me. Mm. I think it pushes us to a very necessary you know, um, spectrum in the discourse is we can't make those blanket statements anymore and expect when we're talking about, again, cisgender white women, you know, at least middle class, then we're not really talking about women and we're not really talking about feminism. I mean, the, the arrogance sort of of the second wave and, you know, as part of the second wave is to assume that, you know, white middle class women's experience was the experience of women across the board. So, yes, it complicates it, but I don't think it clouds it. I think it makes it more important. I mean, it's just what, what often happens, and I do this too, is people will talk about a feminist issue and they give statistics and they talk about what's happening. And then they add on, oh, yeah, and in black communities and in, you know, Hispanic communities, this is the situation. It almost seems to be an add-on. Mm. So what really matters is, you know, middle-class white women, but then let's give a nod to the others. So intersectionality is important, but I think we need to integrate more. So we don't assume that what's really important is the experience of middle-class white women. Right. Yeah. It's essentially all-encompassing at this point, right? Because, I mean, the classical uh, definition of feminism also includes men. It's the equality of both genders, right? Well, I certainly don't think that's what people thought about it. And, and, I mean, I think that's a good definition, but there's so many. I think that's the way people thought about it in the second wave, in the 60s, 70s, etc. So I think now there's a connotation, and I think this is really among people who are real educated in the topic, that um, feminism means gender equity, gender fairness. Mm. Absolutely deals with men in every way, uh, in, in every much the way it does with women, and also, you know, non-binary folks. So when you talk about gender, there's not two genders, and there's not three. There's a spectrum of genders. And again, talking about intersectionality, I think you're not talking about gender if you're just talking about men and women. Well, before we talk about, I guess, men's reactions to third and fourth wave feminism, what do you think are the current, the most pressing issues that women are trying to battle in the fourth wave? Okay, right now, I think it's um, the integrity of the body. I think it's around uh, abortion rights. I think that's the most pressing issue right now. And from that comes so many other important issues like women in the workplace, women's wages, women's you know control of the body. Um, that's absolutely critical, in my opinion, that we reinstate the right of women to have abortions mm. um, or health care. I mean, uh, now a lot of people pr- prefer the word health care instead of abortion. I think that's a little bit disingenuous, to be honest. Ah. Beca- and here's why. Because... Uh, people will often talk about, you know, rape victims who have to have, you know, the child of their rapist or incest victims. And there's a lot said about the 10-year-old rape victim that couldn't get an abortion in Ohio, was it, and had to go across the state. And the majority of abortions are not because of rape or incest or the health of the mother. The majority are because the woman doesn't want to have the child for a whole bunch of reasons. Yep. So. That I think we need to be real honest about. Yes. We're not just talking about healthcare. We're not just talking about rape victims. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like on the topic of abortions, I do see 
the goal is very clear is that we want to legalize abortion um, across the country in the United States. But in terms of things like uh, women in the workplace and the wage gap, don't you think these problems are a bit harder to tackle? Because the the wage gap definitely exists when we look at uh, when men and women on the like from a high level. But um, there is like the Equal Rights Act and you know, it's entirely illegal to pay a woman for the exact same work as like payment for a man. I mean, we have to like incorporate so many other factors, right? Like hours worked and then domestic um, women deciding to have children, which is an enormous factor, right? So these problems don't seem very easy to solve. No, they're not very easy and they're they're very pressing. And um, the reason I brought up abortion rights with that is just because if women, you know, can't get access to abortions, that's going to exacerbate everything, including, as you say, the, the pay gap. So I want to talk about that a little. Okay, the pay gap. Yep. It's a tough one. Um, <laughs> right now, I think you'll read so many different statistics, but in my research, uh, women get about 80 cents to the male dollar, and that's that's improved. That's white women. See, I did it. I did it. Yes. White <laughs> and then um, I could read you statistics, but I don't want to go through my papers. Um, it's it's worse for black women and worst of all for um, Hispanics women. Mm -hmm. I should say Latinx is the word I think that I prefer. And a big part of it, there's lots of reasons, but I want to talk about the baby penalty because yeah. I think that's in some ways one of the reasons people don't think about as much. Just before I start there, I actually don't think it's overt discrimination, the reason for the pay gap. Right. I think that most men, I think most men would agree that uh, women who do the same work should make the same amount of money, not everybody. It's so systemic that it's very difficult to get at. But here's what the baby penalty is. A woman works in whatever profession. It's from the highest level jobs to, you know, the more, I don't know, lower paying jobs. And then they get men, most women get pregnant and they have to leave the workforce um, most of the time. I guess sometimes they don't, they don't have to leave, but they tend to leave the workforce. And when they do that, even for companies that are very understanding and obviously will keep the job open because you can't, you can't take a woman's job away because she's pregnant. Right. Okay? Oh, that cannot happen. But then she falls behind. And the, the higher the job in terms of technology, et cetera, the more sophisticated the job, the worse the baby penalty is. For reasons I'll explain in a minute. So she's gone, let's say she's gone, I don't know, six months, nine months, whatever. That's enormous amount of time in a, in a fast-paced occupation. Yep. And so when she comes back, she's behind. But also while she was gone, she wasn't in the board meetings. She wasn't sort of the water cooler, you know, a gossip places. She wasn't um, there to keep up on whatever was necessary, you know, to keep um, competitive. So she comes back and she's behind. Then what often happens too is people tend maybe not to trust her as much. Hmm. And th this is statistically the case. So this isn't, this isn't just sort of um, something I'm thinking. I'm yeah. not going to give you statistics, but she's not trusted as much. And every time she leaves, you know, it's because she's taking care of her kids or it's because, you know, she has to take her kids to the doctor. That's the way it's thought. Right. So everything is sort of reduced to her being a mother. And so she's not trusted as much. She may not be given the big accounts. It finally gets to the point where she thinks it's not worth it. I'm leaving the job. You know, I'm going to take the you know off ramp. I'm leaving the job. And of course, this can only be true for women who have other other means. 
And so she doesn't go back into the workforce. So when people talk about women don't make as much because they leave the workforce, it's often because they have that um, choice foisted upon them because of childbearing. Like I say, it's obviously much worse when we're talking about high-tech jobs or fast moving, uh, jobs in fast-moving fields because then you get behind faster. Hmm. So that's not the whole issue, but that's an important part of it. I think people don't understand. So when I hear people say, well, it was her choice, or women don't make as much because they're not as reliable, they leave the workforce, I think we have to look at why. Now, I think, I think COVID and you know, just, uh, you know, working from home, I think that's going to help women tremendously. Initially, COVID was very, very damaging because oh, so many women had, had to leave, because women are the primary caregivers, had to leave the workforce and come home. But now that people are working from home, it's easy for a woman to you know, deal with her domestic um, stuff and still work. I think it's going to be helpful in that way. So that's, that's something I want to say about the uh, wage gap. Obviously, there's a lot more to say, but... That, that's a fantastic point because I, I think the arguments about the wage gap really go like to both extremes where uh, one side is saying like, oh, women get paid less for like the exact same work, which, which is not true. And then the other side says, actually, like accounting for all these decisions that women make, the wage gap doesn't even exist. But from what you're saying, the baby penalty definitely does exist. And it's not the same as just taking like a year vacation or starting work a year later, it almost compounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and women fall so far behind, you know, in, in terms of, of wages. Yep. And so I think, what is it, half a million dollars in very high tech uh, that a woman at the end of her career has made less, half a million less than a man who have had a lot of children. And another thing this is doing in very competitive fields women aren't having children or they're putting having children off so late that they often just biologically can't can't have children so there's an enormous penalty right levied on women because they are the people who bear children yeah and so this is probably explains why at the top level of leadership roles women are rarely found because i think at the entry levels i mean there are are plenty of women in yeah. a lot of these uh, leading fields that like the technology that you discussed earlier. Um, but apparently only 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Yeah, it is. And we're talking about high tech, well paid jobs where it's, it's most serious and about uh, women entering the job field in some of the, you know, again, high tech, we're not just talking about that high paying. It's almost equally, you know, 50-50 yep. energy. But at the end of the career, it doesn't look anything like that. Right. And because of most likely the baby penalty? Is that well, where Well, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, you know, the sort of unfairness of it is men have children too. Mm. I mean, it's not just women who have children, but they don't pay the same penalty. And some research says that actually men who have children are considered to be more reliable. So um, <laughs> men who, who have children are 11% more likely to get raises and to be hired. So the women are paying a baby penalty. The men actually are being, you know, seen as their family men and they're stable and that sort of thing. Uh, and it kind of plays into itself, right? Because then these women who are with these men, the men are being rewarded and the women are being punished. So it's very natural to say, okay, I'm going to bow out of my career. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad we went through this, but now that I'm looking at this, uh, from this lens, it's 
well, I guess the follow-up question for me is, what is the solution to, to this? Uh, job sharing is one. Yeah. Um, flexible hours is another. You know, maybe four-day weeks sometime is another. Um, on-site childcare is another. Nursing rooms is another. Mm. So these kinds of things. I mean, you know, in a sense, ask women what they need to stay on the job. They will tell you. And I think when we talked earlier, I told you about um, a CEO. Well, she, she was vice president. I think she wasn't the CEO and um, of a company. And I won't mention names of organizations because I don't know if you would want me to. But anyway, uh, she was pregnant, having a hard time getting into work. And she thought, okay, I'm just going to try this. And she went to her employer and said, hey, can you make some parking spaces right at the front so it's easier for me to walk into work? Right. You know? And you'd never think of that. How hard is it to walk uh, through a parking lot? But when you're really pregnant, I guess it is. Some big organizations. And, and her boss, who's male, said, sure, that's a no-brainer. Mm. So I think, I think women need to, although I know it's intimidating, maybe to say, here's what I need. Right. In some cases, that will be listened to and some not. But I think uh, often women say, okay, I'm, I'm going to grin and bear this, and I can't ask for special accommodations because um, it will seem like I'm a whiner or, or like because I'm a woman, I, I, I need these special things. So, you know, try it. Ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And I think for, for male employers, keep it in your mind, ask women what they need. Okay, brilliant. Uh, I would like to actually go back to some of the other goals that we looked at in uh, third wave feminism. And I think one of the big ones is sexual empowerment. Can you kind of run me through what that looked like in the third wave and yeah. the second wave? Yes, um, it's such an important topic. And when you and I were talking before, we were talking about sexualization, etc. So I thought a lot about that. Uh, sexual empowerment, um, I even would just say bodily empowerment. Uh, sexual is important too, and physical sort of empowerment. But I mean, it, it simply means women um, controlling the discourse around their bodies. And that's not just about childbearing, et cetera. It's about the way we want to present our bodies. And if a woman wants to present her body in a, a sexual way or even just dress, you know, scantily or whatever, that's her choice. So that's sort of what it means. And in terms of actual sexuality, that's really totally second wave stuff about, you know, that women enjoy sex, that women should have access to sex the same way men do. So that was an issue in the second wave. And I think, I think, I don't know if the problem's solved, but I think certainly we've gone a long ways towards doing it. Mm. You know, that women enjoy sex as much as men, have the same kind of access, et cetera. But I think a tougher problem is this uh, sexualization of the female body. And I don't know if you want to talk about that now or not. I, I would love to talk about that. I think the sexualization of the hum of the female body is, is quite complex from what I've seen because we're saying that we want to allow women to express themselves however they want, um, sexualize themselves. But then on the other side, we're also over-sexualizing women. So do you think that women some women are at fault for sexualizing themselves and then contributing to the wider hyper-sexualization of women. Well, I, I kind of think that the word sexualization is a problem here. Okay. Because I think uh, women are sexualized to a certain extent. But I think sexualization is different than 
the woman controlling the way her body looks. So because our society sees a female's body as by nature um, a creature of sexualization, when the woman shows her body, then she's, quote, sexualizing herself. But if we change our understanding of the female body, it, it's the body, you know, it, it's beautiful or not beautiful, but it's not necessarily sexualized. So I think the issue is our understanding of the of the female body that we can't look at it without saying it's sexualized. You know what I mean? Mm. I think when women are wearing what they want, they're playful with their body, they're playful with their clothing. I don't think that's sexualizing the human, the female body. I don't think that's sexualizing it. I think where you do see that often is in, you know, media, advertising, et cetera, where it's clear, you know, like they're selling cars and the woman is there because the notion is if you drive this car, you're going to be able to have sex with this kind of a woman. <laughs> and I don't, I don't like it when the female sexualized, but I can't always identify it. Right. And so I think in terms of, you know, sexualization, I think women need women have bodies and they have minds and they have personalities. Right. And so I, I think if we encourage people to think about the whole woman, I don't care if part of it is the body. And I really sexualization. I'm not even going to go there because we're talking about the human body. There's nothing wrong with the human body. Right. Mm. But when you with the female body, clothed or unclothed. But when you see advertising that seems to sexualize women, what I think we can do is people who don't like it don't buy those products or educate people like you're doing, Matthew. So I think podcasts like this are really important. Let's talk about the issue. And so I'm going to mention a company, but I'm going to say something positive about it. So I don't want I don't want it just to stick in people the negative thing I'm going to say. But I, you know, um, Victoria's Secrets. I just I went by stuff there because I thought their advertising was sexualizing the the female body so much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I have a friend who you know recently um, acquainted, and she she's a manager of a Victoria's Secrets, and she said we got the message, and so they now when you go in there they have um, uh, mannequins of women who are you know larger sizes, mm. and they pull back a lot on hypersexualization of their product and so they listen and so i think what you do is people speak people don't buy the reason i mean advertisers want to sell products right so people who are offended by what seems to be reducing a woman to her body only you know then then we don't buy those products so much and that may seem sort of simplistic mm. i guess that's the way to go ah so do you feel like the inclusion of other types of bodies assists in tackling the wider society's attitudes towards female bodies? Yes, very much. I think, and, and that's very important, is um, different body types. And that's one of the most serious problems uh, young girls have particularly, right. is this notion that if you're going to be beautiful, you have to look like this. And it's very narrow, you know, set of standards. And also you have to sort of present yourself as as very sexual, et cetera. Mm. So, um, yeah, different body types helps a, a great deal. Can, I just want to tell you something we do at Pacific University with the Center for Gender Equity. Sure. We have a project that's called the Human Canvas Project. And uh, people, men and women, you know, sort of basically strip naked and their body becomes a canvas. And so it's painted. We have different themes like, you know, jungle themes. So they're animals. Or one time we had a Halloween theme. And then, you know, there's sort of a program. So there's all these different bodies. 
And it doesn't even really look like naked people somehow. They're all painted. And the purpose of it is, is people, the, the people who are painted talk about their bodies a little bit and uh, things that they're uncomfortable with, parts of it that they like, etc. And it's wonderful because it opens the audience's eyes to the idea that there's, there's lots of differences, lots of ways to be beautiful, etc. So I think it's a, a wonderful program. And so along the lines that you're talking, yeah, let's let's get more women and men, frankly, in media who have, you know, different sizes, uh, you know, short men, for instance. That's mm-hmm. sometimes difficult for men, you know, larger women. And, and I think that's very important for as modeling for young women. Dove has this, uh, you know, the soap, Dove yep. soap. They have great programs where they get um, movie stars, famous movie stars, and they sh- they are photographed without any makeup, you know, without their hair necessarily being done, just the way they would be. And it's very empowering, I think, when, when younger people see, oh, I get it, you know, th- these people are absolutely uh, perfect, you know, flawless, mm. but it's because a lot of money's been spent to make them look that way they all they kind of look like me so yes that's brilliant i you know i think we should uh i would try to incorporate the the introduction of the internet into this because uh, i talked about women sexualizing themselves and you know with the increase of usage in social media platforms like instagram and then you have these content creators uh i don't know if you've heard of OnlyFans where women essentially sell like memberships to explicit content of themselves. And some of these women, um, the top creators on OnlyFans are making upwards of like $20 million. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these Instagram influencers, as they call it, are very beautiful women. And I think on one side you said like a very unrealistic beauty standard, but also they are profiting off this. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts on this? Because I wouldn't, I think it would be hard to argue that a man or some company is forcing these women to do this and you know like telling them to pose this way in an advertisement these women are going after it themselves um but they might be contributing to this like unrealistic body standard and the sexualization of women yeah uh no i'm not familiar with you know what you just said and I don't know. I mean, because you're just you're just introducing it to me, but it's it's so much like prostitution, right? When when you think I'm not saying they're prostituting themselves, but it's just an analogy. So when you look at prostitution, where the the woman's job is literally, you know, selling herself sexually, is that sort of her doing something to herself, or is that an open choice that she makes and therefore shouldn't be? And there's a lot of discussion about that. And I don't think I don't think there's one answer. I mean, in terms of prostitution. Sometimes it's a choice. In my opinion, most of the time it's not really a choice, or there's a few choices. But about young women doing this, I know because my nieces do it, and it's, you know. Oh, okay. You know, Matthew, I don't know exactly. I think it's a problem. Yeah. I think it's a problem. But I think the answer to it would start not online or not with the, the people who are making the money, the influencers. I think it starts with the larger societal change of what's valuable in a woman. Yeah. I mean, women, women that who are, when we think of women being reduced to their body, that is the issue. I, I completely agree with you. And I apologize for bringing that up all of a sudden. I know I should have introduced you to it earlier, but what my thoughts on the matter have been, I, you know, I'm not faulting anyone on either side of this, but it's, we essentially, the system has allowed these women to be 
extremely successful because of their bodies. Women wouldn't be doing this if there weren't millions of dollars coming in from men that have subscribed to this. So I, I, I do think it's a much high level systemic issue, yeah. um, which is really difficult to tackle. I think recently because of the internet, like pornography has become so widespread and easily accessible. And now we have movements like for men that are trying to quit pornography. Oh yeah. Like so many men are addicted to it. And yeah. so it, I think the two come hand in hand, the sexualization of women, these addictions. Well, that you brought up a really important um, point and important case. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own family. And, you know, I, there are two members of my family who are addicted to porn. Um, and in both cases, they're going to counseling. At least we, I think one thing is we understand that as a society that, that it's an addiction and it's a problem. And these aren't just sort of perverts, so they're people who need help. And and there's whole special specialties in psychology, you know, about addictions and sex addiction, about the women, see the, the you know, who are posting these pictures themselves. Um, I have a niece who does that. And she's very smart, she's very smart. You know, she goes to college, she's, she's fun, she's bright. There's so many things about her that are desirable. And so when she presents herself for, you know, uh, foregrounding her body in that way, uh, you got to say, why? Mm. Well, I guess now the old fashioned part of me is coming out and it may seem contradictory to what I've been saying before about women and women's bodies. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic because it seems like the value of a woman is so much consisting of her beauty, her natural beauty. That's the way society presents it, yeah. 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 What do you think? I mean, if you don't mind, what do you think about, what did you call it, The where women are posting? Uh, you... OnlyFans. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, I, I think it's honestly, yes, representative of a larger problem. I think these platforms, I believe, you know, these sites should be allowed to exist. I believe um, people have autonomy of their own bodies. And as long as no one is being harmed or and they're able to consent, they should do what they want. But I do think it's representative of a large problem. The fact that these women posting explicit content of themselves are receiving so much attention and mm-hmm. so much praise and so much validation and so much monetary compensation. Because I think that's where a lot of things stem from. If we follow the money, we see where things come from. I And going back to um, sexualization of women in advertisements and like media, I think a lot of it is because sex sells in Western society. Yeah. Well, but yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is people who are concerned about it don't patronize, uh, you know, companies that use sex to sell. And I know that seems sort of ethereal, but I, I think that's where it starts. I mean, my example of Victoria's Secrets which, by the way, I now will patronize because they've, ex, you know, accept some of the responsibility. But it's about education, right? It's about podcasts like this. But it is serious, I believe, that younger girls do think that somehow their value and apparently now their ability to earn money rests in their body alone. Mm-hmm. But you know, let me let me put this let me put it to you this way: There's lots of other people who use their bodies. And that's how they make money, and that's how they're viewed. Like, for instance, ballerinas. Mm. Okay, so a ballet dancer 
isn't she just presenting herself as a bottle, as a, as body, and that's why she's paid? So, so in some ways, you got to ask yourself, what's the difference? Mm. You see what I'm saying? So, but there's no season. We think, well, there's no sexuality with ballerinas, but why is it different? They're, yeah. They're, they're picturing themselves, they're posing, you know, people are looking at them, they, you know, the male gaze. So it's kind of an interesting thing because uh, using your body to make money is done in many, in many different ways, mm. right? Yes, yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. You probably aren't too familiar with like OnlyFans, with the platform that I'm talking about, but I think that is more just explicit sexualization yeah. and that's where I might draw the line. Sorry? More explicit because it shows more flesh Yes, uh, it's very explicit. It's essentially like you pay money and then I send you photos of myself naked, like touching myself or, you know, similar, like or, always mostly sexual. It's never just like, oh, I'm at this beach. Uh, I would actually like to pivot, though, because I, I think we have been talking about men a lot in this discussion. And, you know, it's almost impossible to talk about feminism without talking about men. Mm -hmm. um, and we discussed this earlier, but... It looks like feminism is extremely polarizing, specifically to men. I read that half of young UK men are against feminism mm -hmm. in the modern day. And a lot of feminists in America, I, I think half of feminists in America even agree it's polarizing. So why do you think that feminism has drawn this backlash recently? <laughs> well, first of all, I've read and, and watched a lot of podcasts, etc. about this too. Yeah. And what you notice is lacking is a a viable definition of feminism. So I think we need to start from the same place. What exactly are we talking about? And feminism has changed dramatically, the term dramatically, <clears throat> since it started to be commonly used in the 60s. I mean, everything's changed since the 60s, and yet so many people want to latch onto definitions and societal um, events of the 60s as though that you know they still represent feminism. I would agree that in the 60s, when feminism was first it wasn't coined in the 60s, but that's when it became, entered, you know, the common parlance. It did mean women's rights, women's rights. But now, for many people, and maybe it's just in the academy, it means gender equity. And so we're not really talking about women. We're talking about men and women and non-binary um, and gender non-conforming folks. I'm, I'm going to say this for the first time, and it's really from talking to you earlier about the word, <clears throat> because particularly with the third wave, the, the women are, and men of the third wave, they really subscribe to all of the kinds of um, attitudes uh, for women's equality. They were even more outspoken, but hated the word feminism because they thought it was exclusionary. And so I'm thinking, yeah, but we use that word because that's where the movement started, and now it includes men and, and others. And so we're constantly trying to tell people, no, that's not what feminism means. Fem feminism means gender equity. But what if we change the word? What if it were genderism? Mm. Would that make a difference? Because we've been fighting so hard for, for rights for women and to help people understand what the word means. And it's not polarizing, and it's not male bashing, at least not in the common era, but it's so hard to get past the word. And so just this morning I was thinking, but what word could we use? And like, I think genderism is a really good word because what it means is we are talking about human beings' issues around gender, and everybody has gender. So 
I guess I would really move towards abandoning the term because it causes so many troubles that you can't get past the word to deal with the issues. And when you're actually dealing with the issues, I think we find a lot of of commonality. Mm. So I say jettison the word, but I don't suspect (laughs) because I said it. I I believe that's a great point because when I first started this research into feminism, I actually didn't realize that it was really emphasized that the priorities were gender equity or sorry, equality between both genders and not just female empowerment. Yes, that's right. I would use a slightly different word. And also I would, if I were speaking, I would want to sort of stay away from the notion of of two genders because there's, there's many genders. So um, I think that's pretty commonly recognized now. And then in terms of equality, the reason we don't call the Center for Gender Equity the Center for Gender Equality is because people aren't going to be equal, not just men and women, but there's not going to be equality, nor should there be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear men often say, you know, that, that feminism is trying to make us all the same. I don't think it is. And I certainly hope I, I don't think most people would want that. We're not going to be the same. We have different talents, different interests, different abilities, right, based partially on biology. But equity means fairness. So equity is such a better word for that. And so feminism is gender equity. And so that includes everything. It talks about fairness and it talks about the full spectrum of gender. And then just so your viewers are aware, I think many of them would be, it's the difference between gender and sex. And and yeah, gender sort of is a construction, social construction, and sex is biologically, um, you know, what you're born biologically. Yeah. And then sexuality is another thing, and that's with who you're attracted to sexually. So gotcha. there's sort of three terms. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, thank you for this, making the distinction between equity and equality. So it seems like in, in your eyes or in, I guess, the wider f- feminism perspective, we're trying to achieve equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Would that be a fair statement? That's fair, yeah. Because it seems as if sometimes people are trying to achieve equal outcomes, which is extremely difficult to do, even given equal opportunity. Because we do, I I think biological differences uh, do come in. I I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about people saying that we should have like the same amount of Nobel Prize winners uh, between Mm -hmm. men and women. And whilst that's a nice goal to, to have, it because of... The variations in intelligence like on the upper ends and the, the low ends and just to elaborate on that there's this uh male variability hypothesis in which males vary at much greater amounts than women do so in the bottom ends of intelligence like that is dominated by men and oh. yes yeah, like two-thirds of the the least intelligent people are men and then at the you top ends they're educated um pure intelligence like iq yeah so i essentially i think trying to achieve equal outcomes is is very difficult to do even with equal opportunity well i mean and also just a quick word on the iq and i'm no expert on that but i think even iq is related to uh, environmental circumstances i I believe so yeah it's not just sort of inborn see the notion of parity you know 50, uh, you know, 50% men, 50% women. I don't like it either. But the reason is because you're just reinforcing that gender binary. 
I mean, my idea would be that you don't think in terms of, you know, gender and men and women and we all have to be the same. It's that gender becomes irrelevant. Mm. That really would be the goal. It becomes irrelevant. When we, I mean, I, I think these goals of, you know, gender parity, et cetera, like in legislatures, et cetera, I think that's nice. That goes a long way. And maybe we need to be there at this point. Mm. But ideally... It's something we don't even think about. Um, I want to talk about Rwanda for just a minute yep. uh, in terms of politics. So in Rwanda, you know, what is it? Three quarters of the people in maybe not be that high in Congress are women. Mm. Wow, that's so great. Well, it's because most of the Tutsi men, you know, in their civil war were were massacred, et cetera. <laughs> and so and then uh, in some other countries where there's near parity, women are saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm in. In Congress, that's great, you know, we're 50-50, but then I still go home and I do all the housework, and so I'm given this opportunity to serve in a very uh, public way, but it doesn't really improve my life. So when we do these strict sort of percentages, I think we have to look at um, other kinds of factors. But generally speaking, to sort of sum this up, I don't like the notion of reinforcing that binary. Okay. Maybe, maybe for now that's a good thing, but in general, I don't think that's productive going back to the backlash of men against modern feminism do you have any thoughts on men's rights activists or these sub movements that have spawned uh for men because if you know i i completely understand your definition of feminism and the the notion that we should change it to genderism but it looks as if many men still believe that feminism has not served them well or has served men at all and that they need to create their their own movements or create men's rights or yeah. things to stand up for men because there there are definitely issues that affect men specifically and i i don't know how much feminism has really done for the modern man well you know you asked how many thoughts i have so many thoughts bell hooks okay she's she's a writer uh you know sort of second wave feminism I went to a lecture that she gave at a university near uh, where I live, and this was years ago, and she said, anymore, all of her work is about boys. You know, you know, very prominent feminist, her work's on boys. And I think really the cri gender crisis right now in this country, and maybe, I don't think universally, but in this country, is about boys. And so Center for Gender Equity, we focus on masculinity. And I like the term that masculinity is in the plural, and I don't like the term toxic masculinity. I think that's an unnecessary term, and I think it clouds, I, I don't think it communicates what it's trying to communicate. But I think whatever helps men, we need to do that. We call it the man box, right? That men, there's, they have relatively few options compared to women in terms of the way that they, they present themselves. You know, they, they're not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to love their mothers. You know, there's so many things that I think we're all familiar with. They're supposed to be the provider, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they're human beings with a range of emotions and opportunities, but they're, they're not allowed to express them. And I want to talk about a wonderful book. It's called, um, it's by a woman named Pasco. It's called Dude, You're a Fag. And it's a this sociologist who did some work in a high school in California. And what she found is that men or boys police other boys in terms of what they're able to do as men. So this really isn't about, you know, LGBTQ. It's that if boys step out of that man box, that very narrow sort of set of 
behaviors, then the other boys, dude, you're a fag, right? Mm. They're crying. It's Mother's Day. They're crying because they love their mother so much. Then the response says, hey, dude, you're a fag. And so by doing that, it is it is men or boys who are creating in some way this um, this cage for other men. I'm not blaming boys for pleasing other boys. I, I'm blaming the society for creating a world in which men have to live in so much pain. Mm. You know, there's another great, uh, it's a video, it's called uh, The Mask He Wears. And it's about the anger that boys, I guess men too, feel because of the way they're controlled, right? They're so controlled and they can't show emotion. And they're angry. And I think men should be angry. But it's not because of feminism. It's got nothing to do with feminism. You know, some people say that, uh, some some people, I'm men particularly, say, well, feminism's gone too far. Mm. I hear that, I think, what do you mean by too far? You know what I think they really mean is it has achieved its goals. <laughs> right. Not that it's gone too far, that it's actually achieved its goals. So it is true that in this culture right now, women are thriving more than men are in a very, very dramatic way. It's, wow. it's obvious, and it's come on pretty quickly. Um, but it's not because of feminism. Mm. It's much broader than that. And when when people, again, I'm going to say men, talking about male bashing, where are we seeing that? I mean, there was some of that in the second wave of feminism, but a lot of it was criticism of the patriarchy, etc. But when I hear people say, well, uh, feminism is male bashing, I just want to know where they're getting that. Mm. You know, I just... On the very specific point of male bashing, I believe because of the internet, you can really find this the whole spectrum of opinions. And I, I won't say that it's non-existent on the internet, to be honest. Yeah, I think in certain pockets, even in feminist uh, forums, you can find some male bashing. Um, but I do want to bring up to a statistic that I guess is talking about the mental health of men mm -hmm. and men are four times more likely to die by suicide these days and i think there's been a huge rise in lonely and sad men i agree with you for the most part and what i found was really fascinating is yes i don't think the cause of men's issues are really feminism at all but uh, i was reading the book of boys and men by richard reeves mm -hmm. which is he's a very prominent author in this space of um, issues affecting men and it was actually shown that due to female empowerment and female autonomy there was almost a breakdown of the nuclear family and the rising expectations of men in terms of romantic partners for women and that has actually caused a big shift in like the dating market in that a lot of men are now you know because women have become more successful and mm -hmm. historically women have looked for more successful men mm -hmm. um now there are a lot of men just left in the dust and we t he talked about marriages in that women re relied on men financially in marriage but men relied on women emotionally okay. and now that we're getting married less there is so many men that are just not getting that that support yeah. getting married less and also um divorced more exactly. yeah right yeah. women initiate divorce at a, a much greater rate my point is, and I think rather an important point is, it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that's one term that men who feel 
like feminism has left them behind or created their situation. We need to understand it's not zero sum. It's not that women are making gains and consequently, you know, it, it, men are making losses. Mm. All of us can be successful, I think. I think the real problem with for men in this culture, men and boys, and I completely agree, it's systemic and it's serious and it has to be addressed. So people are suffering, right? Men are suffering. They're killing themselves. They're, you know, becoming drug addicted um, compared to women. More compared to women. I don't want to um, generalize as though all men are miserable. But but then let's start programming for men. Let's not say it's because of women and women are making gains. Let's then uh, address men for a while. And as in my world, it's happening. I know my world is small, but again, with the Center for Gender Equity, we do just as much male programming as we do for women. And I think a lot of times uh, when, when organizations like mine or you know, women's centers do male programming, basically the programming is, here's what you've done to us, here's how you can help women. And that's not the kind of programming we did. It's about you as a man, because of your gender, are... are suffering or living under certain circumstances. So if men form male-only groups to address it, I think that's great. Now, it's less healthy, I think, when men are in eco-chambers, you know, online and talking about, you know, women, et cetera, just because they don't hear their opinions. But that's true of the culture at large, right? Because of um, algorithms and stuff are all sort of stuck in in eco-chambers. There are many of these online eco-chambers, as you mentioned. Um, So you've been in the... uh director of gender equity mm-hmm. at the Pacific University for over 20 years. How do you think feminism has feminism has changed in the last 20 years? Okay. I think the most important thing is it's become more inclusive so that um, we're, we're talking about men and women and, you know, like I said, the whole spectrum of, of non-binary, et cetera, and it's become more intersectional. And those two, I think that's extremely useful, and I think it's a real good sign for the future. And I just want to bring up an example of intersectionality or the ways in which uh, women's issues or feminism are being embraced by men. So, you know, of course, you remember the Women's March um, in 2017, right after, you know, Trump was elected. Universal, right? Mm. Men, women, there might have been more women, but men are out there supporting a woman's march. So I think that more and more we all understand that what benefits one segment of society benefits us all. So men's lives are better if women are free and happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Because then that also increases men's options. You know, because they can become stay at home dads, they can enter. Uh, fields that are traditionally female, like a nursing, for instance. So everybody benefits, I think, um, if, if women's rights are achieved. We do need to focus on men now more, I think. Mm. Not zero sum. Not zero sum, yeah. Okay. We should all be feminists. Well, yeah. But maybe we can start thinking of terminology that makes it easier for some people to subscribe to feminist views. Right. Do you... Have you seen the role of technology or the rise of the internet and its effects on feminism in the last 20 years? Because I guess halfway through you uh, leading um, the center, the internet has become yeah. a much bigger thing. And honestly, the internet is extremely polarizing. I think it really is a great place for developing uh, extreme opinions. Yeah. 
it's very polarizing and not just in terms of feminism or gender issues. Well, initially I thought, that, you know, the internet is, is helpful because it's disembodied. And so people go online and nobody's shorter, nobody's taller, you know, things like that. Or people could assume different identities, you know, in, in certain circumstances online where playing games or whatever. So it was sort of gender neutral. So in that sense, I think it's good. Everyone has similar access. But because of, you know, and I would say, what, the last 10 years, social media has sort of become toxic. Mm. Then I don't think it's such a great, I don't think it's such a great format. But again, that's true of just about any movement or issue in the U.S. where these, there's, again, these, you know, silos and, and people are just repeating themselves and talking to, you know, the, the, the choir and hearing what we all want to hear. It's certainly true in all aspects of politics. So the way that that affects gender is going to have to be dealt uh, with at a larger level. And it's happening, right? People are starting now to talk about the problem of logarithms. And it's not specific to gender that, you know, people get online and they want to hear exactly what they want to hear. And they only talk to the people with their own views. Yeah, the, the algorithms are extremely effective at delivering you the content that will keep you sucked in. Yeah. And yes, I would say my understanding of feminism from perusing the internet has been very different from my idea of feminism from talking to you. Okay. If you look up feminism on the internet, what you find is, I think, very extreme supporters of feminism and almost, almost uh, male bashing. And the other side of just feminists getting owned by like conservatives uh, in public debates. Um, I think it's because a lot of men who are falling behind in the society for societal reasons, not because they're men, they're angry. And the thought is, if we could only return, right, return to the 50s. And, of course, the Trump administration, that was kind of their general message, when things were better for men and men were the head of the households and, you know, men had jobs and women stayed at home. I think a lot of men think that would be better. It wouldn't be, though. It wouldn't be good for anyone. And it's because of patriarchy. And I can talk about that for a minute if you want to. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of these frustrated men are stuck in a real bad place and they're flailing and, and they don't exactly know what the answer is. But it isn't going backward mm. to, you know, to the 50s. And it isn't, uh, it isn't bashing feminists. Yeah. None, those things are not going to help. What's going to help is society recognizing that men are in pain and they need help. You know, I, I mean, in very many ways, in very many ways. Yeah. There's a lot of misplaced anger from men towards women because mm -hmm. of being either unsuccessful and honestly, a very big factor is not having success romantically. I, oh. I think a lot of the anger from the incel subculture, which involuntary celibate, is because they have no success with women. And then it's, you know, like, oh, women only care about this and oh, the six free rule and yeah, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of throw this in, and I don't know how well it's pretty characteristic, but maybe it's because some men or the general culture men don't exactly know what women want, and so they may be presenting themselves in a way that's not very attractive to women. An example: I have a lot of friends, actually family family members, you know, who go on these dating sites and stuff like that. Mm. Hey. Like before much has you know happened in terms of them getting to know each other, men send pictures of their penises. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not just one or two; it's really common. I, you know, any woman I know don't want to see that. 
you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so my sister was on this, uh, you know, one of these dating networks, and she went with this guy, and then she liked him. They'd been on a few dates. But he brought along this picture of, of his, you know, genitals. Wow. Just completely turned her off. So, you know, if men and women can maybe talk a little bit more about what they want, and as more women are, be this is a problem, are becoming more educated cause, because we know men are dropping out of education at all levels, right? Mm. From from high school to college, etc. So women, women are becoming a little bit more educated. I don't think they want to see that. I'm not saying uneducated women want to see that, but we don't communicate very well, do we? You know, I read this quote earlier, and I think it totally reinforces what you're saying is, uh, today in America, women expect more from men and unfortunately, so many men don't have more to give. <laughs> and that's, that seems to very much be the case because we are falling behind in education and you know, we're really not prospering as, as much as we perhaps used to. You're not falling behind in salary, but that's not very, um, that's not very relevant because so many men just aren't working. But when you get to high paying jobs and stuff and when you get to representation um, in the political sphere, you know, men still dominate there. But again, it's because a lot of men have really just dropped out, mm. you know, because there seems to be so many forces against them. The term patriarchy, what does it mean to you? What uh, do you think about it? Well, I'm gonna. I want, I'm glad you asked me that because I see that thrown a lot around a lot, mm. and um, some podcasts I've been listening to, they say, "What does patriarchy mean?" And their answer is not the right answer. And and the reason I can speak with such assurance on that is because of my training in medieval history and and actually ancient history too. Really understanding what the word means. It's not about men are at the top and women are at the bottom. That is not what it means. Because when you think about that uh, it, that way. There are a lot of women who have a lot more power than men who are lower on the socioeconomic scale. So it's not, men, it's not men are here, women are here. What patriarchy is, it's about power. So you think about it as a pyramid. And due to competition and due sometimes to the accident of birth, you have a few people at the top who are very powerful. It has to do with capitalism, too. Capitalism only works if some people are disadvantaged. It's the only way it can work. So you have a few people at the top, and, and they're men. But there's also women, you know, who, who are in, uh, pretty powerful too. And then if you go down that pyramid, then people become less and less empowered. And for every level on that pyramid, you'll probably have women below men. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it is about men's dominance but it's not about men over women. Again, I, I mean, I kind of referred to this before, but so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty middle class, I have PhD, I'm, you know, um, make a decent amount of money, all that kind of thing. I'm much more privileged than so many men further down the pyramid, right? Mm -hmm. So patriarch's not about men and women, really. It's about the way power is distributed. And of course, power equates to money. So it's much more complicated sometimes than people think. And again, in this podcast, actually, that you uh, got me onto, which I really love, patriarchy is toxic for men and women. Mm. Patriarchy keeps men in their place just as much as it does women. Right. It's, it, it's poisonous. Mm. And, and so much, so many of the problems we have, where it's, it's you know, men and women and the genders fighting each other, it's not each other that's the problem. It's the system. The people at the top. 
the patriarchy. I mean, people at the top are are, in, are harmed too. Nobody benefits from patriarchy. It's the entire pyramid, then. It's, it's the not the actual people. It's not the people. You know, it's a system that was set up. Well, I mean, in medieval and even earlier, that some people at the top and other people have to lose and be at the bottom. And that's why I say zero sum game. It is possible to organize society differently, and we're not going to do away with patriarchy or capitalism anytime soon. Mm. But we can mitigate the effects of it. But we can't do that if the the genders are fighting, because. Right. It's not men's fault. It's not women's fault. It's not non-binary people's fault. It's systemic. It's a mm. system. I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction because oftentimes when people think of the patriarchy, we look at the people. It's uh, men at the top and therefore oppression towards women. But you're saying it's the entire system. It's the entire setup that we have, like a stack ranking of people. Yes. And I think men... Men are are very much victimized by patriarchy. Hmm. Yeah, I I definitely think that shows. I mean, we we talked about the high school side rate uh, falling behind in education. Um, That's to more dangerous jobs and like the mental health issues that men have. Yeah, but I I think we can, you know, and I think we will. I think we need to get men to a position where they can expand their understanding of what their opportunities are and they can be allowed by society to pursue you know, their feelings and their needs and different job opportunities. So I think the problem can be addressed mm. and it, it needs to be addressed about helping men find their place in society. I mean, women are doing pretty well, not in all fields. So let's do for boys and men what we've done for women and girls. Right. Let's, bring, let's bring everybody up. There's a disparity now, but we're talking about it, right? There's men's group. There's books about this. Of course. So, so the problem's being recognized. Right. Do you think that if women dominated uh, the Congress or were at the top of the pyramid, things would be majorly different or we would still have the issues of the patriarchy? I think you still have the patriarchy. I don't think men and women are too much different except in their socialization. So I think women are socialized, you know, to be more collaborative, to be more conscious of, of feelings, you know, to share more. You, you know, the sort of stereotypes about women, I think, are pretty much true because they're socialized that way. And right now, I think when women are on in the workforce or in positions of power, you often see them dealing differently, more humanely, more collaboratively, etc. But that's their, I think that's their training. But if you eliminate those differences, yeah, I think women would be, you know, I think women would behave pretty much the same if they were at the top of the period. In fact, I think they do. We see it. <laughs> we see it. Yeah. So, again, I don't think it's about gender. I think it's about power. Wow. That's that's a great definition. I was listening to a podcast uh, in preparation for this episode, and um, ah, crap, I can't remember the name, but it's a feminist podcast, and they were talking about what if women rule the world. And I, I think it was definitely very biased because they they – spoke about it as if if women ruled the world many issues would just be gone like that and i i disagree with that and i think it sounds like you do as well it's yeah i mean some issues would be would be solved because i think there would be more maternity leave and you know family you know paid family leave and i think there'd be some issues that are specific to women that would be addressed if women were in charge but there there's all kinds of other things. There's wage disparity that wouldn't change. And again, that we have to deal with men's issues around gender as well. I'm very passionate about that. Mm-hmm. I think we need to do something for men 
I think that's that's where our energies need to be right now. Those who are interested in gender equity, and that's not by any means to say that you know the problems that, around women and, and feminism don't still exist. They absolutely do. Mm. Let's sort of bring us all up together. That's my thought. Let's kind of elevate everybody together. Genderism. Yes. <laughs> you heard it here first. Maybe I should go on the road with that term. <laughs> I think if that were the term. I just think so much of the vitriol would be taken out of the discussions. I agree. I find that a lot of, you know, you're expanding on these common definitions that I think are extremely divisive. When people think of patriarchy, it automatically divides people, men and women. And then um, I did want to capture your thoughts on like talking about male privilege because that is such a common topic as well, or like uh, race privilege and gender privilege because I, I find that although that's like a valid thing to bring up it's so divisive because it's it just separates people and I, I don't personally I don't find those discussions to be extremely effective and mm-hmm. as you mentioned you have a certain set of privileges over certain men and it's it has nothing to do with your, with your gender right right yeah um I just want to go back to patriarchy for just a minute technically it means uh that um Descent goes through the male line, right? That's yeah. what it initially meant. And not all cultures on earth have been patriarchal. There have been some matriarchal cultures. But anyway, going back to what you said, I think the notion of privilege is pretty important. Um, when people first started talking about privilege, it forced me to examine my own privilege and to really understand where sometimes, because of my privilege, I couldn't even see it. Mm-hmm. And I was negatively affecting other people without realizing it, and especially uh, in the classroom, which is really interesting, to fully understand the, the, the privilege that the professor has over the students. Mm. And if someone says, oh, no, I'm really nice to my students, and it's egalitarian, it can't possibly be because of the structure. I think it's important to talk about privilege, but not, not so as much as we do, I think, not as much as we do, because it's often a term that's thrown around, and, and it's a term that's used you know, to battle against someone else. So privilege is a thing. We need to understand when we're privileged so that we can um, not become unprivileged, but so we can uh, not hurt other people because of our privilege. But yeah, I I understand what you're saying is it's used to insult other people. Yes, it is. I I think it tries to, attempts to invalidate other opinions. It's like, oh, you're a white male, so you wouldn't have the faintest idea of... I can't listen to you because you're privileged. Oh, I totally agree with mm. that. Yeah, I, yeah. let's leave that out of it. <laughs> have you found that uh, to be commonly used at colleges? Because I I find that a lot of American colleges are quite liberal, and they do like to bring up these topics often. Yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. This privilege thing has gotten crazy. You know, this sort of white guilt... Mm. Oh, it's it's just like it's also people, you know, some people in college, college campuses for sure they become very liberal in a direction that I'm terribly unhappy with. But um, it's like you're a nerd; you can't do anything because you're afraid you're going to, you know, uh, violate somebody else, or your privilege is going to be oppressive. So let I think it, let's recognize privilege and then sort of move on. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Of course, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that point. It seems to be, I mean, everyone is so preoccupied with this. Yeah. And creating debates over this. I think the term is guilt labeling or something like that. I just learned it the other day from a friend of mine who works at a college, Reed College in Portland. 
And she said there's a thing now where students want to be ashamed of themselves because they're white and they're sort of the dominated, you know, other races of the world. And so they vie to be the most ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, I'm horrified because this was Native American territory and I feel like I shouldn't be here and I feel so bad about it. And the thing is, how is that helpful? Mm. I think let's recognize, yeah, this was Native American territory and what happened to the, you know, Indians was awful. So now let's go forward and, uh, you know, ameliorate that. And I think sometimes folks will feel like if I've recognized my privilege and if I feel bad about my privilege, that somehow solves the problem. So I would say stop talking about your privilege and let's work on the problems. Mm. Right? Yeah, I I agree. Yes. Focusing on on the solutions as opposed to looking at history, which honestly is such a big talking point in American politics. Yeah. yeah, that's, of course, I mean, a historian, that's important. But the notion that history repeats itself, no historian would agree with that. No <laughs> would agree with that. When I hear that trope, I just think, ah, oh, that's not true. History does not repeat itself. <laughs> and there's a, there's a few others. Oh, the other one, if, if you don't know his, learn history, you're um, condemned to repeat oh. it. No, that's not true. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, circumstances are so different. And sometimes you can see some parallels, but I can't tell you how many times uh, recently, you know, people have said to me, oh, America's going to hell in a handbag. It's just like the fall of the Roman Empire. And I just say, no, it's not. It's not like the fall of the Roman Empire. So it's just like Nazi Germany, but it isn't. (laughs) And I think what happens is that that prevents us from really dissecting, you know, the problems in our society and dealing with what happens here. But people are, are sloppy. When they compare eras and say, oh, it's just like this, it's just like that, you know, sloppy thinking. The historian side of you. <laughs> yeah. <Excellent. laughs> okay. Uh, last thing I would want to pivot to is I want to talk about, you know, we've been focusing on feminism, I think, primarily in America or in the West or the Anglosphere. I want to look at feminism in a more global context because feminism, the issues that women face in different countries are vastly different. And, you know, we can look at examples that technically, I I don't know how much you believe in these metrics, but have uh, better gender equality, such as like the Scandinavian countries. What do you think they're doing better than what the U.S. is doing? Or do you think they're doing anything better? Oh, yeah, I think, well, they're doing things different. I don't know if it's better. It's just because those Scandinavian countries are more well, liberal, and I don't mean that in, in the sense that, you know, Democrat, Republican, but they're liberal or more socialistic. And I don't consider that a bad word, but it's the politics across the board. I don't think they're doing better in terms of gender equity in a bubble. It's just overall more egalitarian. So everybody does better there in terms of, you know, they focus more on social systems and uh, that sort of thing. I think that's where they're doing better. But uh, in terms of you know, other countries, I think it's pretty important, and I think it's sort of counterintuitive, is feminist issues are going to be different in different countries. And the word feminism, by the way, has been adopted around the world. And so, but it's different for different countries. Now, so so one interesting one is, I'm my, my secondary field is the Islamic Middle East. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I've been to the Middle East many, many times, different countries, and have a pretty good sense for that. But at the beginning of Western, you know, American, white, cisgender, middle-class women wanted to sort of, quote, help other women in different cultures. 
you know, around women's problems. And so what they did is they imported our understanding of what women need, our ideas. And so they go to the Middle East and they say, oh, my gosh, you know, women are veiled. They can't show their body. This is terrible. The <laughs> issue there has got to be women unveiling. But that's not what they identified as their most important issues. And so actually wearing the veil became very prominent among, you know, Egypt's the country I know as e Egyptian feminist, mm. because it was like, I'm not going to have the West tell me what I need as a woman. And so uh -huh. people started to veil as a reaction to this um, imperialism, in a sense, cultural imperialism. Mm. Uh, and so a, a subject that comes up all the time is female circumcision. And uh, you know what that is, right? Female circumcision? Uh, roughly. Roughly. Okay, it's yeah. where young girls have part of the clitoris cut off. Yeah. Sometimes it's pretty um, invasive and drastic. Sometimes it's just a nick. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons that that's done, you know, in Islam. And it's pretty rare, actually. Well, it's done in particular areas. And that just seems horrifying, you know, here. But really within that culture, I think what we have to say to in that culture, is that horrifying to you? And if they say no, then we leave it alone. So we have really wanted to drive the narrative in several other countries along uh, Western lines. Mm. And that has not been well received in many, many countries. Mm. And in India, one of the most, the foremost feminist issue, one of them, is men having jobs. You know, so that never be an issue here. But women's lives were significantly better if men had jobs, right? There's more money coming in. The men had something to do during the day. Men without jobs drink a lot, and that's a problem there. An American feminist might think, well, that's not really a feminist issue. Quite the contrary. <laughs> you know, it's women who, who need jobs. But that's not what they think. So I think there's been a real problem with us in, uh, exporting traditional white feminism. Mm. But that's recognized now. And but it's still not done very much. I don't I mean, so I would say the majority of people who call themselves feminist will still point to other countries and focus on the issues that are important here and not realizing they've got to look at it from the context of that country. Women in, in Islamic women or women in India, they have to be empowered to carry out programs to improve women's lives in their own country on their own terms. That's a. Uh... That's an exceptional point. I do have to think, though, that there are some universal beliefs that we should have about women. Do you see this as well? Like, should we be fighting for certain things that are almost regarded as absolutes? I see what you're saying. And also yeah. there's suti as a, a habit in India. It barely exists anymore of the widow throwing herself on her husband's you know, funeral buyer and burns up with him. Yeah, oh. those are kind of universal things mm. that we should fight against. But let's talk to the people in Egypt or in Islamic countries. Let's talk to them and, and they'll, you know, they'll take care of it. What if they don't? You know, what if, say, in Egypt where there's a lot of forced, not Egypt, some Middle Eastern country, a lot of forced uh, marriage of, you know, teenagers, young girls, and effort, effort is made by people who think that's immoral or wrong or inhumane, mm address it well in fact i want to ask you this question i'm interested in what you have to say and yet folks in let's say iraq thought no child marriage is something that we think is okay we believe in we understand that it's not accepted in the west but we're going to keep doing it right. well then don't we have to respect that i i think we do i think we do i i think we're almost forced to to be honest it's yeah. very hard to impose one it's culture's values on another yeah 
Yeah, I think we can write against, against uh, talk against it, but ultimately, I just think we have to um, respect the values of other cultures. This has happened, uh, you know, um, with people have come here, you know, I'm going to say from the Middle East, who practice female circumcision, and they want to do it here, right, in the U.S. And so there's kind of been a compromise that they'll take their girls to a doctor, and the doctor will do a little nick, mm -hmm. right? That satisfies them. So, you know, I think there's, there's going to be kind of compromises. And so the family can say, okay, my daughter's been circumcised. Because a girl's circumcised, she's more marriageable. You know, she's thought not to be as sexually wild, et cetera. And those are values we don't subscribe to. But, you know, we're talking about their values, not ours. Mm -hmm. And so this little nick doesn't really hurt the girl. It doesn't really impede her sexuality. Sort of everyone's happy. So maybe we talk to each other a little bit more. And we find ways that we don't have to be antagonistic. I'm really glad that you clarified the differences in feminism across the world yeah. and how it differs culturally. I mean, I think it's very hard for a social movement to be unified globally, considering I, all the different cultures. Yeah. 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 I think if we're respectful of each other, but frankly, the West isn't very respectful at all of, of you know, non-Western countries. And we haven't been respectful in terms of feminism either. But we're more conscious of that. Mm. So hopefully we're getting more respectful. And it's not always easy. But it's not just in feminism. There's lots of things that other cultures do that we find abhorrent. Not around gender, but that's, you know, the way they see it. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to discuss? I don't know if you want to go into that. We had a conference, you know, the Center for Gender Equity. It was an international conference. I'm, I think I mentioned the unmasculinities. Mm. Boy, people flooded to that, and so many people said, this is the first time we, we had a conference on this, that we've heard about this, and there's just so much energy, and it was wonderful, and they were talking about the very kinds of things we've been talking about. So so it's happening, maybe mm. too slowly. But. So the direction of feminism that will soon be changed to genderism uh, in the coming years is a focus on men as well, inclusion, Very right? Yeah. That was a big yeah. focus in the last 20 years. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Gonna jump into some lightning questions. Okay. 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 Number one, who do you look up to? Okay. I mean, there's a million people, but um, Obama. Obama. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he's got this fabulous soul. I mean, it, it's all combined. He's intelligent. He's intuitive. And he's got, he, he has this soul i think for understanding people and reaching people he's so principled i think there's a lot of other people but right now if i could meet anyone i wanted to in the world it would be barack obama and his wife i feel, I feel like michelle obama is a, yeah a, I, I think she's fine but not as much as barack obama. <laughs> okay <laughs> fantastic okay quick question on feminism uh what is your favorite book or writing on feminism that you think everyone should check out Dude, you're a fag. Dude, you're a fag. When did you stumble upon that? Gosh, it's been about seven or eight years ago. And then we had the uh, author come and speak at an event in Pacific University. And it's, again, it's, it's about men and boys. And right now I say that's my favorite. But, of course, if I were to think for a few minutes, there would be a host. But right now, that's the one that comes to mind. Brilliant, brilliant. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'll tell you, one of them is I'm a, I, I tend to turn things in late, right? I don't know if this is what you wanted to hear, but <laughs> not to turn things in late. You know, I'm always writing, publishing, whatever, and I'm always a little bit late. So and, you want to turn things in on time? Yeah, I want to be a little, yeah, I want, the, <laughs> I want a little more control of my, my day, my life. I find that extremely surprising. I thought only students could turn things in late. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Uh, academics never turn things in on time. So when I'm asked to do like a book review for a journal, I know I can, you know, turn it in two months later. I got a book review due right now. It was due two months ago. And, you know, I haven't been contacted by the journal because they know it's going to be late. So it's amazing. And I don't, you know, if any of my colleagues are listening to this, this I'm sure there's good reasons. But, yeah, I, I don't like that. I don't wow. like experiencing people. So, no, it's not just students. Everybody has that problem. Is a big part of why things come in late? Because of procrastination, is it the same as what students encounter? They just put it off? No, not for me. It's okay. just for commitment. Okay, that's that's more professional. Yeah, it's <laughs> Right now, I've got two book reviews due. I'm writing an uh, article for an encyclopedia. Mm. I have a chapter of a book that's due. So I just need to learn to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Uh, do you have anything else you would like to say to the viewers? Yes, I do. I want to thank you for bringing the subject up, being interested, and you've been such a, a valuable listener. So, you know, you've listened, you asked follow-up questions that I think were really germane to what I was trying to say. And I think what you're doing right now is actually the answer to so many of the problems we've talked about, is bringing awareness to problems and questions, talking about them, um, openly you know in a collegial manner so thank you thank you for doing this wow what a great compliment i really appreciate that i mean to be honest martha i think uh having done this episode and done all this research and read what you've written has definitely opened up my eyes on onto feminism yeah i think feminism uh you know we talked about before is is so divisive in the modern age especially creating divides between men and women and i think this really the definitions that you gave out are you know, this is not about division. This is about working together. Yeah, that's really perfect. What you just said, that's perfect. That's what it is for academics, I think, and for some. And I think that's got to percolate through the population. But it's not going to percolate if people are just in their own little silos online. Mm. That's the problem. It's not going to reach them. But we're starting, right? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Martha... Thank you once again so much for being on this podcast. You oh, really perfect. killed it today. Um, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And to the viewers, I will, and listeners, sorry, we will see you next time on another episode of Everything in the Modern World. Okay, see ya.